It's a good prayer to pray, especially as you know of those that are lost and without Christ. Just praying, Lord, let there be light. Let there be light in that soul. Luke 18. The 18th chapter of Luke's Gospels, where I turn your attention this evening as we endeavor to finish this chapter and get to the end of it with the Lord's help. One of the things that that happens with the passing of generations is that you forget a lot of things, or you you just don't know certain things. Uh, They get lost with the passing of time. You see that even among the kings, the law gets lost, and so um, it, it results in all sorts of havoc, and there needs to be a recovery. But not just a recovery of the Word of God, but a recovery of even expectation among the Lord's people. How do you recover expectation among God's people? One of the things you can do, of course, is encourage them to read books of the past, read lives that were used by God, uh, be acquainted with history where unusual things happened and God moved. And uh, in our modern era, we have the benefit of even being able to see and hear from some. And for many years, Some of you have been here long enough. For many years, this church used to send out uh, anyone who would request the the recording of Duncan Campbell's account of the revival on the Isle of Lewis. And many, many of those were sent out from this church to encourage the church beyond the walls of this congregation to understand what God has done, even in recent past, and to believe Him to do it again. Well, these things, as I say, get lost, and we need to recover it. And I trust that even exposure to those that have gone before may be of help to us. Luke 18, I want to read from verse 35, where we left last time at verse 34. So let's read the remainder of the section that we're dealing with. Remember, our Lord Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We're getting very close now to the final days of his life. Luke 18, verse 35. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cries so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. When he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Amen. May the Lord enlighten our minds to receive and believe His Word with profit. May it be received by faith in our hearts. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Lord, that's our prayer tonight, what we've been singing. Let there be light. Should there be some darkened soul in our midst, maybe among our children, they are surrounded by light, but they have not yet seen it. And so, like Samuel, they need to pray, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Lord, I pray that our children would would have such a spirit of meekness and desire to hear from thee, and that thou wilt come to them. But maybe they're older folks, still darkened, still uncertain, still on the broad road, still lost. They're darkened. 
They don't have the light. They don't have the sight. They can't see what many of us can see. God, give sight. Flood in thy light. Save, we pray. Please, O God, do thy saving work. To that end, give us the promised Holy Ghost that our risen Redeemer, by his Spirit, will be in this place in power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever visited a place that was significant to your own heritage? Have you ever gone somewhere that maybe, maybe you didn't grow up there, but you know that your family line goes back to that place? Maybe you haven't done that yet, but you'd like to. You can think of places and you know, well, my, it's part of my family, hails from this nation or this part of the country, and you'd like to visit there. Perhaps you'd like to go to the church in that location and look at the records that are there to see family members get names and dates of those that perhaps were baptized in some old congregation. Maybe you'd like to go to a graveyard, see the names there on the the headstones of family members and just take in some of the, the details that you know or you're aware of concerning your family line. It's common today, very popular today, of course, And because of the internet and technology, it certainly helped with the kind of discovery, let's say, of information about our family line. Well, if you go there, if you go through such an experience, I I can see us, you know, in a a place, let's say, and, and imagining our forefathers or whatever being there. Maybe we know what kind of... Uh, jobs they had, or what skills they had, or what kind of life they lived, and we imagine ourselves to be in that place. Well, I say all of this because as I was reading this passage and preparing for tonight, I couldn't help but think, I wonder did our Lord Jesus have thoughts like that on this occasion? We have no other record of him passing by Jericho except on this occasion, where we have it here concerning the blind man, or the blind men, as Matthew tells us, there was a second man there as well. And Zacchaeus, who we read of in the beginning of the next chapter. And I wonder, when our Lord went to Jericho, did he have thoughts? What do I mean? Maybe you're wondering, like, what do you mean? Was he, was he not of Bethlehem? Did he not grow up in Nazareth? What's, what's the relevance of Jericho? Well, you read Matthew's gospel, you'll discover the relevance of Jericho. And you'll find there in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab. Rahab the harlot. She's in the line that leads to our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just wondered, I wondered, did it come into his head? I wondered, did he think about the fact that such a woman who was so lost, has such a history of sin, and was in such a desperate need, our Lord has a line back to such a person like that, Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. I don't know the answer. I don't know if that came into his head or what he was pondering, but it came into mine as I was reading the passage. Because we, we feel that, don't we? We feel a connection to places. Whether that's directly relating to our own experience or perhaps through family. We, we feel like our, our family was here. Right? You feel it. We're, we're from there. You feel a connection to these various geographic locations. Well, as I've said already, he's making his way to the cross. Lord Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. We are coming near the end of his earthly ministry. And before we get to that cross, we find here just another reminder of why our Lord is on this earth. He is here to deliver men and women. And we're going to see here a deliverance of blind Bartimaeus, and we will, in chapter 19, learn of the deliverance of Zacchaeus, and the Lord then is going to make his way to Jerusalem, and there won't really be much by way of encouragement regarding people receiving him, crying out to him, that is meaningful. Now, we're going to see some measure of empty crying out, we're going to see the great entrance into Jerusalem and the reception that he had at that time. But we soon learn that the same people, or certainly a similar crowd, 
were very soon to cry out, crucify him. So we get this little encouragement. Our Lord is here to change lives. And I want to look at these verses with you very simply. I've titled the message simply, A Savior of the Blind and Beggarly. A Savior of the Blind and Beggarly. Note with me first, as we consider our Lord Jesus in this passage, His proximity. His proximity. So He's going to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. And as He makes His way, He comes here to Jericho. And Luke is presenting to us a reminder of why He's here. He's here to help men. He is in proximity to people who are in need. So He comes to Jericho. Verse 35, as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. A certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. A man in need. Always in need. I don't know if he always sat here or whether it's tied in to the increasing masses of people that are beginning to swell around the area and making their way. He's anticipating the crowds that will make their way toward Jerusalem via that particular direction, I don't know. But there's a man. In fact, as I told you, Matthew's gospel said there's two blind men. You say, well, why does Luke only mention one? Well, because you don't always deal with everyone in a particular group or crowd. And it would appear, given the fact that Luke's gospel gives the name of this man, blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, that's his name, just Bar being son of Timaeus, so he was, he was given a very simple name, he was son of Timaeus, so they just called him Bartimaeus. <laughs> it's, like, it's like my last name, son of Thomas. Somewhere in my line there was a Thomas. And so they just started calling him son of Thomas, Thomasian. So it's, it's a very simple name. But he was a man in great need. Tremendous need. And someone no doubt helped him on occasion. People would give alms as they would pass by. But here's a man who doesn't have much by way of the means of this world. And our Lord Jesus comes right near to where He is. How merciful the Lord is. As I say, He deals with people who are in need. You think of His connection to Rahab. You think of such a woman being in His line. The Lord Jesus knows what it's like for people to be in need. People who are despised in society. Who are outcasts of their community. He knows what it's like to identify with such people. He has it in his own family line, humanly speaking. And so the blind were no different, really. The blind were perceived to be under the judgment of God. That's why they're blind. God is judging them. And so they were outcasts. Mostly people didn't have any time for them just like a harlot. And the same is true when we come to the next chapter and we deal with Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, another outcast, kind of person that people don't want anything to do with. He's a traitor. One's under divine judgment. The other's a traitor to his nation. These are people who aren't loved or appreciated or valued. And yet the Lord Jesus, the reminder we get of his ministry as he makes his way to Jerusalem is, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I have come for people in need. And Bartimaeus presents to us a great reminder of the kind of messy and needy situations our Lord Jesus draws near to. There are a couple of ways of looking at this as you you look at the need that is here. There is looking at it in terms of the, the natural condition of Bartimaeus and the hopelessness of his condition and then the human response, the, the, the responsibility man has, despite his condition. So I want to move through a couple of points here. First, man's natural condition seen in Bartimaeus' blindness. The fact that this man is blind presents to us a reminder of the condition of all men. The reason why our Lord Jesus, as the Messiah, and it's prophetically stated of him in the prophets, that he deals with the blind is because it symbolizes and presents what he has come to do. Men by nature are blind. They're blind. They can't see. Remember that statement in John's Gospel, chapter 1, 
when John the Baptist is preaching, and, and he says, there's one that stands among you whom ye know not. And you, you think about that. You think about who he's talking about. I mean, if I was standing in a crowd of people who didn't know me, it wouldn't be a surprise. There's one who stands among you you don't know. But we're not dealing with a, a, just an average person. We're dealing with the creator of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He made all things. He spoke everything into existence. The entire world is upheld by His omnipotence. And He stands in their midst, and they, they don't know. They can't see that this is the one that they owe their entire existence to. The Bible speaks of men having their understanding darkened. They can't see. And so they're unable to perceive as they ought. You think, if only, if only we could see the way Adam saw. Adam could see in this world, everywhere he looked, his God. Not in the sense that he could see God in the creation. I don't mean that in some pantheistic way. I mean in the sense that he could see the fingerprint of God everywhere he looked. Adam couldn't look at a tree and discard God any more than some of you might look at some kind of machinery or invention that you're aware of, the inventor of that. Like, you can't, you can't look at a Tesla and not think of Elon Musk, right? You know, there's a certain strong connection there. You think of other inventions and things in this world, and when you know, or at least if you're immersed in that world, you can't think about the work of that person without thinking about them. And that's how Adam was in this world. Everywhere he looked, all the trees, all the animals, everything that moved and breathed and everything that was there, inanimate life, all of it, it, it thundered into Adam's heart that he is in the presence of his God. Couldn't miss it. But you live today, and I live today, and we, sometimes we don't see it. Very often we don't see it. I've made this argument, I think, part of the increase of atheism in our culture is caused by the fact that we are shut out from God's display of His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth His handiwork. You can't look at creation but, but see God. But what, how do we live today? We've moved away from agrarian life. We've moved away from dealing with the, the muck and the dirt of animals and livestock and all sorts of, you know, growing your own uh, foods. I know some of you are trying to revive all of that. I get it. But, but we've moved away from that, largely. And so what do we do? We go from our man-built homes. We get into our man-built vehicle, while we're still in our man-built home, mind you. And then we, we drive... Maybe early enough that it's still dark, but we, we drive into our, our other man-built place where we do our work in some kind of cubicle or office or wherever, stuck there for 10 hours of the day before we come out, get into our underground parking lot, get into the, the vehicle, drive home, open the garage as you drive in, get into your man. You never see God's world. You don't see it. And I think that's contributing. I do. I absolutely believe that's contributing to the atheism of man's heart. He can't see the evidence of the glory of God. Stick him out in the countryside for a while. Learn to farm. See the glory of creation. And the way life moves and is controlled under the hand of a sovereign God. Man is blind. He can see something of it, but he struggles to see all that he ought he struggles to truly understand. Yes, I think we talk about projection sometimes. You know, someone projects. They, they think something's true about someone or something that's really stemming from themselves. And I was thinking about that in terms of the world. We men like to say this world is the product of chaos. <laughs> it's just all chaos. It's just kind of all happened, random chance. I'm like, if ever there was the, the greatest expression of projection, is there. The chaos of your heart and your life, you just think, well, that, that just because there's chaos in here, so it is out there. No, 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 no. No, it's all under the hand of God, shaped and formed, 
ruling and reigning over every detail. As one has said before, not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. Everything under his governance. Well, we have a spiritual blindness that prevents us from seeing. We're unable to behold. So we have preachers who have to come and say, like John the Baptist, say, Behold the Lamb of God there behind me. Behold the Lamb. Look, man. See, woman. See the Lamb of God. We need encouragement. We need help. We look back in our lives and we see those times when we were blind, don't we? I do. So blind. Where are you? Where are you? Do you recognize the blindness of your own heart? You think your arguments, you think your reasoning. I say, why are you not yet a Christian? You give this, here's why. And I say, my friend, you're blind. So God, God, by His Spirit and through His Word, He's constantly pointing us to examples like this. And there, there are many others. You go to John 9, you find the man blind from birth. There are other examples of people who are blind. And it's, it's, it's the Lord saying, look, 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 this, you're all like this in a certain fashion. But I'm here to deal with blindness. So man's natural condition is seen in Bartimaeus' blindness. But it's also seen in his beggarliness. We're told also that he was a beggar who sat by the wayside begging. He has no resources. He has no ability just to stay at wherever home is and maybe pay for help or have some friend who would enable him and strengthen him. No, he's pushed out. I don't know what his family connection, I just know he's the son of Timaeus. Maybe his father's long gone. Maybe whatever inheritance that he could leave for Bartimaeus has, has long been used up. Bartimaeus is by the wayside. He has to find his way there. Maybe he lives there. I don't know whether he moves from place to place depending on where the crowds are. Of course, he has to be where people are. But whatever case that he's here, he's by this wayside on this occasion hoping that someone will see him, ever so, every so often hearing footsteps and sort of reminding people that he's there, some kind of expression to, to sort of draw attention to himself. Arms, can you give something? Totally dependent. Every day of his life, he's, he's wondering, will I make it through this day? So he presents to us again in his natural condition, in, in this, he presents how man in man's natural condition is, is like this. Our Lord again uses beggars to convey to us that we're all like this. Not all having to be a, by the side of a road crying out for help, but, but there's, a, there's a lack of resources, a lack of, a lack of power, a lack of ability to make a difference in our lives spiritually. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It's a well-known passage. But it ought to be. See how the Apostle Paul presents the case of all men. How they are found. So he has been looking at Jew. He's been looking at Gentile. So, Romans 3, let's read from verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, under this position of, of judgment and condemnation. So, he begins to quote Old Testament Scripture, as is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. Here you have the fact he has no righteous resources. He has no argument of his righteousness before God. He's a beggar. 
You know, people say, but I'm a good church-going person. Being baptized, read my Bible, pray. I believe in God. I can say the Apostles' Creed. I can affirm certain truths about God's Word. And, and there's a certain confidence that comes by what ultimately is an expression of your own resources. Friends, and boys and girls, you need to get this. The only argument you have before a righteous God is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one has a righteousness to say, Oh, good, look, Lord, look how good I've been. You don't have it. It's an illusion of your own mind. Perhaps you've been deceived. Naturally, we tend to feel this way. I've told you my own feelings about that. How I felt about myself for years. That I don't believe in God, but if He is there, I think I'm okay. I'll be fine. I didn't read this. I didn't know there's none righteous. No, not one. That includes you. It includes me. There's none that understandeth. There you see again the blindness. There's none that seeketh after God. Even you might say, well, I'm blind, but at least I'm seeking. No, you don't seek. No one seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Jew, Gentile, doesn't care where you're from. This applies across the board. Their throat is an open, open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is just death and there's just nothing of life-giving even in their mouth. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They hurt people. They harm people. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you can go on. You read on through this passage. The argument of it. There's, there's nothing. You don't have any argument Nothing. Verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has missed the mark. So this is why Jesus Christ came. He comes into a world. He comes in proximity to a world, an entire teeming mass of humanity that are all spiritual beggars. They're all beggars. And He has come. And He takes flesh in order to procure, to live out, to give himself to a full obedience, satisfying every demand of God, being that one who can actually obtain life through obedience to the covenant of works. So Adam is told, because you've broken the law, you will die. Christ comes and says, I will take that. I will take the obligations of that. But I will not die because I will, I will obey in every part. And so it will have to be credited life to me. And then life to all who believe in me. It's, it's, it's God come and see in the poverty of humanity. The, the spiritual poverty of every man, woman, boy and girl. Who, who will one day be in heaven. He sees them all. And he says, I see all their poverty. I'm going to come put my arms around the riches of salvation. I'm going to obtain eternal redemption for them. He puts his big omnipotent arms around all the demands. And he has this, he gathers in this, this great big storehouse, as it were, an infinite storehouse of the benefits of salvation. So a sinner can go and say, I have a need, Lord. What do you need? I need forgiveness of sins. You can have it. I have purchased that for you. I need all the guilt of my past washed away. I need it all removed, Lord. In fact, my present and my future as well. Can you do that? Yes! The storehouse is open. I can give you that. I need a father. I need God to be my father. I need to be brought into his family. Lord Jesus, can you do that? Yes! I can bring you back under the knowledge of the fatherhood of God that you're in his family, adopted. I need life, Lord. Yes, I can give that. 
eternal life. See, you can't do this. Do you see it? You can't. You're a beggar. You can't do this. You can't get the righteousness you need. You can't get the eternal life you need. You can't. You can't work up some impressive resume spiritually before God. You can't do it. You're a beggar. All that you would understand, you're a beggar. You say, preacher, I get it. I get it. I'm a beggar. Okay, I, I, I get it. Good. So we need to establish the problem. You're blind. You're beggarly. Completely incapable of saving yourself. But, but you say, well, since that is the case, then I guess I can do nothing. And I say, well, that's true. You really can't do anything. However, and we put a caveat in there, because the Word of God encourages us in aspects of what we term human responsibility. That we are meant to do certain things. So we see some things from Bartimaeus here. First of all, we see his interest in verse 36. Hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. Here's a man who's interested. What's going on? What's the hustle and bustle? What's happening there? Some people go through, they're not interested in anything, really. You know, they never ask any questions. What's going on? Well, well, there's a certain drawing out after this. There's, there's something. Maybe he heard something. Maybe, maybe, and I, I was wondering this. I wondered, you know, but he was bound to have heard about the Lord Jesus. He was bound to have. You put the whole timeline together and you, and you see the events that are happening, what our Lord Jesus is doing. And news of this, news of these deliverances and salvations and raising from the dead and sight to the blind must have reached his ears. And I believe he was converted. I do. I don't believe he's converted right here. I believe that he's not converted at the point the Lord Jesus interacts with him. There's, there's something in him that signifies he's already believing. So, so it may be, it may be that Bartimaeus had been praying. Oh God, send them this way. How come he hasn't come this way yet? So he's been praying. And so sometimes when you pray for things, you have this little, this little, you begin to uh, look for the answer, don't you? You know, it's like you're, you're, you're looking for signs that God has heard your prayer. You're like, you're, your senses are alert. It's like, <laughs> is this it? Is, this, is the answer coming? You're like Elijah. You send a servant. Go and see. Go and see. Is there rain coming? He keeps going. He keeps going. He's, he's anticipating it. There's a cloud the size of a man's hand. There we go. He's looking for it. Anticipating it. Too often we come Wednesday nights and we pray for things that we do not actually look for. We do it at home as well, don't we? It's a bad way to pray. But maybe Bartimaeus was praying with a certain expectation. Oh God, send him here. But anyway, there's an interest. I hope you have an interest. I hope tonight you have an interest. You're, you're curious. There's an interest in you. I, 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 would, I would like to know more. That would be a good place to begin. But also there's importunity. Bartimaeus displays importunity because when you read on, verse 37, they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. <laughs> and he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. I just stop there. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth passes by. He responds, Jesus, the son of David. This is what I mean. This man already has been dealt with by God. Maybe old Timaeus had been a good father instructing Bartimaeus. Expect the Messiah. Bartimaeus, expect him. Maybe old Timaeus was like Simeon, believing that he wasn't far away. Maybe he'd stimulate it within Bartimaeus in anticipation. He's going to come. I will live. And the Messiah will come and fulfill the prophecies concerning him, including giving sight to the blind. 
They lived in that hope. So they say, Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene, it wasn't wrong, but, but it wasn't as perceptive. This is how he was known generally. The people who, who didn't really know, this is how they knew Jesus. He's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's, it's the name that was given to him, it's how he's known, Jesus, and he comes from Nazareth. But Bartimaeus, he, he looks beyond that. No, 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 no. If that's all you see in him, you fail to see who's actually in your presence. This is the one referred to in 2 Samuel 7. The one who will sit on the throne of David and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the one who is the son of David, who is the right to the throne. He rules. He has all power. And he's going to occupy that throne and rule for the favor of his people. He's the son of David. So Jesus of Nazareth to many people could do nothing for people. But you couldn't call him Jesus the son of David without realizing that he could make a difference in your life. He's a king. He's a king. I could get sidetracked into talking about coronations and kings right now, but I'm in the wrong country to do that, so I'll not bother. And he was, he was discouraged. They that went before rebuked him. He's just, a, he's, just a, he's just a blind beggar. Stop it. He's like the disciples. Remember the disciples did the same thing back in verse 15 of the same chapter. They brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. And Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And here you find the crowd doing the same thing. Hold your peace. <laughs> As we would say in old Ulster Scots, Hell your wheesht. But that's, <laughs> that means nothing to you. But it just came to mind. I couldn't, not, I couldn't read that without thinking about how my granny would word that. Hell your wheesht. Hold your peace. But he cried so much the more. If, if there's ever a time that you want to cast away public opinion, it's in the matter of your need before God. If the world is saying, have done with that. Forget the Lord. Stop living the Christian life. Don't seek Christ for salvation. Any language that discourages you from drawing near to the Lord Jesus Christ, you should abandon. You should forget. You should ignore. You should act like it was never said. This is what he does. He, he will not be discouraged. As I say, I think this man is converted. I would have reason to believe he hoped for a day that the Lord Jesus would come by. He longed for it. And now it's here. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the son of David. <laughs> it's like he's just hurling himself, and they're like, be quiet. Leave him alone. He's like, no way. No way. Don't you realize he came for people like me? He came for beggars, blind men like me. And what does he pray? Have mercy on me. Have mercy. What a simple prayer. Oh, oh, that you would see that it's prayers like that that the Lord doesn't ignore. It doesn't have to be this long, impressive, articulate, poetic prayer. Forget it. Get down to business. What do you need? Here's a man who needs mercy. He needs mercy. He's lived his entire life, or at least a good part of it, he's lived under this feeling like he's under judgment. And everyone who walks past him says, there's someone under divine judgment. There is one that mercy has abandoned, and God has no interest in. And so he publicly comes and he says, no, oh Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Good prayer. He's not looking for justice. The fool looks for justice from God. But the humble look for mercy. You can have it too. So, we've seen here the Lord drawing in proximity to this man and dealing with him and how he has responded to it. 
various things to have learned. But note also then his pity. We're seeing the Lord here, his proximity. He's come to deal with beggarly people, blind people. He's come to their needs. But we want to see his pity. Verse 40. Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. When he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Pity. In fact, you go to Matthew's gospel, it says that the Lord had compassion on them, on the blind men. He had compassion. Of course, his compassion, his compassion is an expression of his priesthood. He is a priesthood. He's a priest. He's, he's, he's there to represent people before God. And he comes and he shows pity and compassion to men in their need. And so as I say, I, I believe he already was saved. He had salvation. But he longed, he longed to have that physical touch of the Lord that the physical would reflect the spiritual. I, I can see you, Lord. I see you. There are people, think of it, think of it. There are people in that crowd, perhaps who had witnessed miracle after miracle done by the Lord Jesus and they saw it with their own eyes. And still he was just Jesus of Nazareth to them. Here is someone who had never seen it. He'd never seen any of the miracles physically. He may have heard about them. I believe he would have. But he had never seen them. But he can see. He can see with greater, greater clarity than others in that crowd. He can see it. And now it's just like he's saying, Lord, give me my physical sight. Give me what is true of me spiritually. What I already see in my soul. Give me also the physical ability to see. So encouraging. There are a few things as we consider the Lord's pity. Christ's pity makes men feel like they're the only one in the world. Christ's pity makes men feel like they're the only one in the world. There's a whole crowd there. They're telling him to be quiet. He repeats again, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood. It's like omnipotence stops in its tracks at the cry of a pitiful sinner in need of mercy. Remember, the Lord's going to Jerusalem. He is, he is on a mission. He is going to Jerusalem. Nothing is stopping him. Nothing except the cry of a blind man who's a beggar. As I say, it's like the pity of Christ gets reflected in a way that makes men feel like they're the only one in the world. That's the interest the Lord has. He is able to give attention to every individual in such a way it's as if you're the only person on the planet. Some of you may be going through a season where it feels as if God doesn't see you. That he's too busy. Or interested in others, not you. Bartimaeus just cries out. And God incarnate halts at his cry and commands, bring him over. Which shows us also that Christ's pity utilizes others to bring sinners near to him. His pity is such that he utilizes others to bring sinners near to him. He commanded him to be brought onto him. That's the commission, isn't it? I was watching that 
that, as I told you, that discussion around the life of, of Dr. Paisley. And Dr. John Douglas was remarking on those, those very early days in the life of that church of Dr. Paisley's when he was a very young preacher. God began to work in, in the preacher and in the congregation. And Dr. Douglas was remarking that there, there were men in that church. There were men in that church and they, they, they would fill their cars twice over to get people into the house of God. They'd pack their vehicles. They would just find anyone they could and bring them into the house of God. They, they didn't just work through, like move through their week blind to the needs of men. It's like they were on a mission. Constantly drag people under the sound of the word. He said there was, he mentioned one, nine people. Bringing nine people into God's, one man, one meeting, nine people. Nine. This is what the Lord wants. He gives commands. Go and bring them to me. He doesn't expect you to change their life. You can't do it. I can't do it. He says, get them to me. Get them to me. So how can you do that? Well, you might say, here's a copy of the scriptures. Read it. Here's a new beginning. If you read that, in a week, let's have coffee. Let's talk about the contents of that booklet. Let's, let's discuss it. What are you doing? You're not, you're not bringing them to yourself. You're bringing them to the truth. You're bringing them to the Lord Jesus. And you can do it, you can, you can do it here as well. I mean, you know, you know, by and large, Sunday evening, I'm going to have an emphasis on which I will try to make the gospel clear to those who do not know Christ. And if we were all living the way we should, I condemn myself here because I live in this world too, and I go three weeks, the vast majority of which I don't go and try to get someone in to hear the word of God. But that's what the Lord does. Go and bring them to me. That's what he says to you. What are you to do this week? Find some and get them to Jesus. That's what Andrew did. He goes and finds his brother. That's what the woman at the well did. Goes to the city and doesn't enter into arguments. Just come and see. The Lord gives this command. In that other Lord, in his pity, in his mercy, he would say to us, go and do this. Bring them to me. But also Christ's pity opens the door to heaven for believing souls. Christ's pity opens the door of heaven for believing souls. What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? (laughs) What a question. What do you want? you want? Imagine for a moment that you were asked that question. What do you want? The Lord of glory says to you, what do you want? I think we're afraid of that question. It's, it's too much. You're almost afraid of the responsibility that comes with a question like that. What ought I to ask for if he says, what do you want? And yet you read John 14 and other passages for that matter. When our Lord speaks of prayer, that's, in essence, what he's saying to his disciples. What do you want? Ask. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Quote 
Jesus. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We don't believe it. We can just about crest the challenge of believing that every day he gives us our daily bread. I believe it. But he opens up heaven to this man, Bartimaeus. What do you want? He just comes right out with it. I may receive my sight. You're asking for, (laughs) you're asking for eyeballs. (laughs) Like, just wait a minute. Like, eyeballs. The most, perhaps the most complex organ in the human body. With all the advances in camera technology, it still can't have the dynamic range of human sight and vision. You look at something too bright, everything gets all shadowy in other places, but we can look at bright and still see other things for the most part, except the extremity maybe of the sun. Amazing organ. Give me my sight. Give me eyeballs that work, that function. You might as well ask for the universe. Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. He pulls two things together here, like he always does. This is my point. The miracles function as a message of the underlying need of men. Your faith has delivered you. Your faith has brought you to where you are. The faith that you have has brought you to this point, And you obtain what you have by faith. So it's true in terms of salvation. You want the forgiveness of sins? You want spiritual sight? You ask for it. Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see. But there's an element in which you have to come asking for it, looking for it. Save me, Lord. Give me life. Give me light. Give me new eyes. I want to see the way I'm meant to see. So heaven is opened. And then there is finally his power. As I say, you see it in verse 42. Jesus says, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. So you have the man's new sight. You have also, verse 43, And immediately he received his sight. So there's new sight. There is new service. And followed him. I like that. That's what the Lord's about, isn't it? So he summarizes his word to the, to the disciples. Leave your nets. Come follow me. Matthew, follow me. The word is follow me. So you want, you want salvation? You want it? You want it? You have to follow Jesus. There has to be a willingness to say, okay, I'm coming to you, Lord, and I'm coming recognizing that you're Lord. Yes. To use this language, you're the son of David. You are Let's use another term. You are the sovereign. And I am your subject. And I will follow you. Are you there? Is that what you want? Do you want to follow Jesus? Truly follow Jesus? Walk in his shadow. Fulfill his will. Do what he asks. Sacrifice when he demands it. Go where he sends. And there's a new song then, isn't there? Glorifying God. Followed him, glorifying God. (laughs) Yes, Psalm 40. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto your God. Many shall see it, and shall fear, and trust in the Lord. That happened here too. Because all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. I don't know how sincere they were. I don't know how much they understood of what just happened. I don't know if it was 
salvific to them and life-transforming for them. It certainly got their attention. As this man begins to live life in such a way that it gets the attention of the world, he's transformed. That's what Jesus does. He changes lives and people can see the difference. And so in your work, you shouldn't be like other people. You should be different. You should be. You should be marked as different. Where you work, in your community, you're different. They're out mowing their lawn on Sunday afternoon. You're going to church. They're making jokes and saying things about their wives or about their husbands and mocking and so on and so forth. And you're not. You won't enter into that kind of speech. And very quickly they notice you're different. Why? You're following Jesus. You're following Him. It's His words that you obey. It's His will you want to follow. You're governed by a new master. It's not you. So you sing. And you go about your work singing. They're singing all their worldly songs. And you're singing the songs of Zion. Oh, Christian, do away with the worldly music, please. Just have done with it. Why bother? Why waste the gift of singing on empty lyrics? On things that don't glorify Christ? I don't get it. I will never get that. From the moment of my conversion, I never understood. The gift of singing is to God. Why, why would you bother wasting it on, on frivolous stuff? Oh, I know. There's, they're, they're, they're different sort of, let's say, um, times as, as a nation. We, we sing our national anthems and all the rest of it. Whatever. Of course, if you're singing the right national anthem, you'd be in one sing, say, you're singing a prayer to God anyway. God save our king. <laughs> anyway, Oh, it's glorious, isn't it? Christ coming to blind and beggarly people. That's us. And he saved me. He did. And he saved many of you. And he can save those of you not yet saved. He can. You're blind, you're beggarly, you need salvation, and the Lord will respond to the cry. In just a minute, we're going to bow our heads, we're going to pray. And you can, in that moment, you can say, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I want salvation. I want eternal life. I want to follow Jesus Christ. I want assurance that I'm yours. I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I give my life full, entire, no reservations, to follow you. Are you prepared to do that? Are you? Lord, help. Let's bow together in prayer. Friend, you need to have done with your sin. You can't, you can't hold on to any sin. You can't say, I'll I'll give up A, B, C and all a list of things but then you hold on to one thing. You can't. You come to Jesus with empty hands prepared to embrace Him and only Him. One of the passages says that He threw off His cloak, threw off His garment have just thrown away the old life having done with everything else to go and follow Jesus that's what you need to do throw off the old life have done with it seek the Lord while he may be found if I can help you please let us know we'll open up the word and pray with you Lord bless thy word we pray for the salvation of sinners We pray for people to see, as Bartimaeus saw, what he could see even before he obtained his sight. He could see Jesus as the son of David. Oh, please, O God, have mercy. We expect thee, Lord, to do thy saving work. You're in the business of saving. Do that saving work even tonight. Be with us as we fellowship. Strengthen the church 
to serve through this week. Give us the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all the people of God, now and evermore.